was through the perception which encourages us to put forth, uh, give this this day a little more attention. Because the life from hum, human beings is usually something that we we can drift, we can float in, kind of get by, uh, get through a lifetime sometimes with without really putting much effort, paying attention to anything, but just uh, floating in a in our delusions, delusions of the society we live in, and to wake up and question those delusions, isn't it? It's what what we're doing. The, the Buddhism is a religion of, of awakening, using awakeness and mindfulness so that we can see uh, the way it is, the truth of the way it is. That's the Dhamma. And to really do that, it's, it's a very simple thing to do, but it's something that we keep forgetting about because the, the delusions are more real for us than the reality. We give so much attention, so much importance to the delusions of our mind, uh, and the reality of the present can be seen as totally unimportant and insignificant. Well, why do we do that? Well, we can just contemplate what happens uh, just on the level of news, international news, of the terrible uh, kind of uh, things that you hear about, the Kosovo and all these uh, kind of dreadful wars that are going on, ethnic battles and butchery and terrible exploitation and maniacal obsessions and where does that come from? From a world of delusion where the reality is completely ignored for uh, a commitment to our delusions. And uh, Buddhism approached this problem, the Buddha approached this problem very directly. One of the biggest delusion is uh, regarding delusions as reality. And then the, the self-view, the, the, uh, the ego, the personality as, as what we really are. I am a person, a personality as a reality. So the reality of our personalities oftentimes become more real for us than the reality that we recognize through mindfulness. So, for example, becoming a, a samana, a monk or a nun, isn't it? We're, we can make this another ego trip, becoming some kind of Buddhist monk, Buddhist nun, uh, putting on a robe and becoming some kind of holy person uh, and personality. Uh, that's one way of using this this uh, form to become 
become somebody, become a Buddhist monk, become a samana. And so we wonder, we so we expect a lot from anyone that proclaims themselves as Buddhist monks or Buddhist nuns, and you think they they should, uh, they've broken through the realm of delusion, but oftentimes the very conventions that we use are they're creating delusions around them. So we can become very caught up in the sense of our own self-importance, our position, our years, our commitment, our morality, our uh, teachers, our lineage, and all the rest, and, and it becomes another uh, important sense of self that we that seems very real to us. And the reality of the moment is seeing the impermanent nature of conditioned phenomena in the present. It just seems insignificant compared maybe the uh, the emotional state that, that's kind of uh, roaring inside. And uh, as we also have a lot of education, we we learn to develop, say, our intelligence in a certain way. As I was saying in the past several hundred years, two hundred years, uh, uh, we've developed this uh, such a kind of uh, identity with rational thought and this sense of thinking and analysis and logic and reason and and right and wrong. So we we put a lot of importance on on being right and trying to and and, and afraid of being wrong. In the holy life, this can can be carried into the holy life of wanting, you know, because the people are generally attracted to Buddhist monasticism are usually quite idealistic and people that want to be good and right. But where there's right, there's going to be wrong. And so this, uh, we're, we're caught between these two polarized mean opposite things that that uh, we we adhere to. When you think, when you're caught in your own thoughts as reality, then of course that's how it seems. So you, because thinking is a is a divisive function of the mind, divides things right from wrong. So when you think right, wrong, you have to have right, we put right first, and then wrong. Or then wrong and right. But how do you get them both at the same moment? Uh, it's an impossible thing because thinking process is like that. It's linear. It's A, B, C, on to Z, one, two, three. So uh, instead of trying to analyze and think ourselves into enlightenment through logic and reason and analysis, it's uh, through this intuitive awareness, mindfulness, wisdom that the Buddha uh, 
emphasized in the teaching in the Buddhist meditation is around is around trusting in the intuitive ability of the mind the the ability to awaken in the present to pay attention which is uh, not necessarily a thought is it you don't think but uh, if you can think but think thinking is a part of the is only a condition in the present there's a kind of imminent internal act of just listening and attentiveness in the present and that's an intuitive moment that's uh, an Im- uh, intuition embraces right and wrong rather than then prefers one over the other so if you're just caught in thinking then then you're then you're caught in the duality of everything the condition realm there doesn't seem to be any way out of that through thinking about it and just like all the attempts to try to define what God is in a theology uh, trying to trying to uh, decide is there a, a God or isn't there a God or a, a creator God or an ultimate God or whatever and, and of course the rational rational scientists uh, they're very much attached to reason and logic says well you can't prove God you can't kind of show me anything that is God so therefore it doesn't exist there's kind of logic there and it's based on the fact that uh, that the, the, that you, in terms of condition phenomena in terms of thought and reason you can't you, you know you just get entangled in in maybe clever uh, complicated thinking around that subject but then to think that there's no God also it's just the same thing really whether you think there is or think there isn't it's still, you're still thinking and maybe you might prefer might, you might be one who prefers to think there is and think there isn't but that's but they still uh, haven't realized anything you're just following a preference an inclination so like mystical experience in or in religion or meditative experience is uh, letting go of the need to to think and 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 uh, define it doesn't deny thinking we're not trying to uh, it's not an anti-intellectual or or a uh, uh, an attack on our ability to think but learning to let go of thinking as as reality to to not try to think and uh, and try to uh, use that function of the mind for anything other than helping us to direct our attention towards this awakened state so the conventions that we have uh, as say uh, that we have here the Theravada Buddhism 
uh, Amravati, these are conventions, they're conditioned phenomena, and they're, uh, it's tradition uh, and convention. So this is recognized that this is, uh, we can we can spend our time making stands for the value of tradition, the importance of tradition, purity of tradition, uh, having conventions, having all this is an absolute necessity. Uh, and and we can make a, a good case for that uh, right through using our uh, rational mind. We can also make a good case uh, for it about it's useless and and pointless. We can we can make a, a, a we can make a logical stand against convention and tradition and religion. Because thought is like that. You can just you can justify and rationalize any anything, uh, whatever position you take. Then the logic uh, arises from that particular position. So if you're in for to justifying tradition, then you can make a good case for it. And if you're into justifying no tradition, you can make a good case for that. But in the intuitive moment, it's not a matter of picking and choosing or preferring one over the other or deciding which one is right, which one is wrong. It's the awareness of what's, what you're actually doing, of desire and attachment, of identity with your thoughts, with your emotional habits, with the body itself. So in, the way it is, the truth of the way it is. So the word Dhamma is a kind of, it's a word that is, you know, you're not trying to define Dhamma. Dhamma is, is the way we do things. We're the real Dhamma and, and uh, people who don't do things our way are not real, they aren't really practicing the Dhamma. And we've got a kind of direct line to the Dhamma where, say, other groups don't. And our, we're pure, and we're more pure than the rest. So that, that, that's, uh, that, what are you doing with that? You're, you're making, taking a position, attaching to the convention. But as soon as you awaken to that, to the suffering, uh, of attachment, then you're, you're transcending the polarized conditioned realm. Because the intuitive mind embraces both. It's not exclusive. It includes everything. So good and evil are included because they, they're, they're, they're complementary. They belong together in terms of intuitive awareness. Right and wrong, uh, success and failure, happiness and suffering. Uh, the intuitive mind is is a universal intelligence that includes and does not divide. In terms of our own direct experience, 
then at this moment, the awakened mind, the awakened state, includes everything. Includes the body that that you're that's sitting here. Includes the emotional state that you're that you're in, that you're that you're feeling at this time. The thoughts, the the feelings, the pleasure, the pain, the neutral feeling, the the uh, elation or depression, fears, desires, sense of yourself, attachments. It includes it all. It's not critical or judging anything. It's just noticing the way it is. The way... The, the truth of the way it is. So then we, with that kind of clarity, because that's a very, that, that, through this way, you, you're beginning to clarify. The mind, in true nature, the mind is clarity and intelligence. The light, it's clarity, it's intelligence. And so the clarity, then, then there is a, a kind of reflective, the mind, then you can reflect on the way things are, like the, the emotions you're feeling, or the thoughts, or the physical sensations, or the attachments that you have to the, your personality or the conventional world. You, you can reflect on it, you can see it. You can feel it. You can know it for what it is, knowing the truth of the way it is. So then, what is the way it is? Is it that all conditioned phenomena is impermanent? So, Paisankarani Cha. That's just the way it is. That's not a, a judgment or a criticism. It's, a, it's, a, it's not trying to prove that all conditioned phenomena is impermanent, but by noticing, paying attention to conditioned phenomena as you're experiencing it. So that includes everything that goes on in your mind and body at this moment. Uh, any kind of emotional feelings or fears, desires, uh, any kind of perceptions, thoughts, Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. We, 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 in, in the personal meditation, what are you doing? You're kind of really looking and noticing the truth of the way it is. All conditioned phenomena is impermanent. But you're doing it intuitively. You're not, uh, you're not, that's not an intellectual exercise. With, well, with a lot of people that, so-called practice vipassana, they're always, they're projecting the ideas of impermanence onto experience. Now the, this is the, this is one of the ways we delude ourselves, is by thinking we're actually witnessing impermanence, but we're actually uh, holding to a view of impermanence. Because the view of impermanence is, is, is another condition of the mind. So we're not, we're not trying to believe in impermanence, but awaken to the way it is, to impermanence as experience. 
<clears throat> now I found in my own life and uh, practice that that one of the uh, that the negativity, for example, negative emotions were uh, were experiences that I tended to resist. Just a, a kind of a uh, not intentionally even it wasn't like with even intention it was habitual resistance so so there was a, it's for first few years of monastic life there was tremendous resistance to do negative thoughts trying to get rid of the five the nimaranas or trying to get rid of negative feelings bad thoughts fear uh, desire and all this, uh, because the the mind was still was full of the ideas of Buddhism, was attached to a lot of the ideas about Buddhism that you, uh, what you'd hear and what you'd read in books. So the mind was still very much, uh, uh, very much committed to Buddhism as a as a logical, reasonable, intellectual approach to life. But the uh, meditation itself, as we keep cultivating this, and we begin to see that, that, that it's more profound than just uh, being able to to uh, logically justify all Buddhist uh, doctrines and and ideas or ideals. The the satipanya, this these words translated wisdom, one panya wisdom, sati mindfulness. And this is like bring into consciousness right now the way it is. Because we can be sitting here and, and be thinking about uh, something else. We can, our mind can be in the United States while the body's sitting here in England. No, that's that's how it works. I can be, uh, you know, anywhere but here, even though the physical body's here. I can be caught up in in my own obsessive emotional habits. Just you know, really. Uh, fully committed to the fact that I have these problems, these problems are mine, I am this way, I've got to get rid of these bad habits, I've got to come to terms with my anger, and I've got to uh, learn how to develop my relationships and and all the kind of ideals and, and ideas and opinions that we that can sound, especially of the age where the kind of way we think, modern psychology and things like that, encourages us to think in terms of oneself, improving oneself. So, so these uh, these are these can be very real for us, very urgent, very important. But if you if an awakened mind is not denying this, not saying, uh, well, there's no self in, a, in a modern psychology is a waste of time, it's not, 
it's not making kind of moral or value judgments against anything, but just noticing this feeling of I am somebody who's got problems and I have to do something about it in order to become somebody who doesn't have any more problems. Basic delusion, isn't it? I am somebody with a lot of problems and I've got to do something now to get rid of these problems so I can become somebody who doesn't have any more problems or I can be somebody who is enlightened in the future. So this, this atta uh, view, isn't it, the self-view the Buddha pointed to, so all conditioned phenomena is not self. Anatta. So then uh, we grasp the idea that there is no self. But that's not point of it. Whether you believe there's a self, you believe there's no self, it's still the same. You're still grasping a belief of some sort. You're taking a position. I believe there's a self, an eternal self that lives forever, that's uniquely mine. Or I believe there isn't any. There's no soul and there's no self. And it says so in the scriptures. There's no self. But that's a belief in an idea of no self. Or is the anatta that the Buddha pointed to isn't isn't a, a doctrine to grasp, but a way of reflecting on the way it is? Can you find any permanent self? Anything that you can say is really mine, really me? When you, what is it? Can, can you do that? Can you find anything that is a real? Probably the body is about it. It's the most kind of seemingly permanent thing we've got, isn't it? So there's a strong identity with the, with the physical body, which is all right if it's you know young and attractive and so forth. <laughs> and I'm really. You know, I'm a, I am a beautiful person. That's very, that's comfortable for a while, but then you can't sustain that because you don't stay that way. So, so the body then is, uh, you know, we we try to we hold to the, the the view of ourself as a physical being or as some kind of soul. I contemplated this, because I was brought up with this idea of that I have a unique soul, that when I die, it will, my soul will go to heaven if I've been, if I've done all the right things, taken Holy Communion and done all that kind of thing, uh, and, uh, and then I will, if, if, God allows, I will, my permanent soul will rise up into heaven. And that, that was the kind of um, teaching that I was brought up with. And when I try to find a unique soul, 
let's say, is, is really, you know, the, the uniqueness of me as a soul. I can't find anything. And I've looked for a long time just to see. <laughs> and it's kind of an interesting thing to do. Because as you really mindfully observe the way things are, I can't, you know, the, the only thing, the only ability that one has that has any sustainability is mindfulness. But with mindfulness, then you're, you're mindful of thoughts and emotions. So, then be, and you begin to see the kind of evanescence of those conditions. When you look at your emotions, objectively, when you witness to what your emotional state is, totally accepting it, not judging it, not creating any problems around the emotions that you're having, but just it's like this, what happens? Well, I find when, when I do that, then they kind of, they like fizz or fizzy things, you know, they kind of bubble a bit and move around and and they, they don't really, there's not no core to it, nothing that you can, you know, really get hold of and then, they, and then it all kind of dissolves. And not mention just thinking, just thinking alone is very, you know, rapid and, and just, you know, it's, it's, it's being a ra- identifying with a sense of being a reasonable, rational person is a nice thought, you know, to identify and kind of, uh, I'm a re- I'm a rational being, you know, intelligent. I'm not one of those emotional people that you still, you know, you know, get whirled away by their feelings. I'm a, I'm a real, you know, objective, scientific person that looks at life, you know, in a cool way, in a rational mind. But even though that delusion might be what you prefer when you really look at it, it's, that's not the way it is, is it? That's not the way it really is. That person that's really rational and cool, you can't find. I can find a, a, a view that I am that way. That's all. I can see that, but that does, that's just a very changing, uh, uh, moving condition that, that might be present very briefly. So what does have continuity while the emotions are going on, your thoughts move, your body uh, goes through its changes, it ages and its sicknesses and its uh, health and ill health and so forth. What is the, the one thing that we all can have that at this present moment that, that isn't subject to change? And so then the Buddha said, mindfulness, be mindful. Mindfulness, path to the deathless, appamado amattapadang. So appamado, 
heedfulness, paying attention, awakeness. So this awakened state, really trust in it, you know, that's something you can really trust and cultivate. And it's not, it's not, uh, and you can't find any personal thing in it. It's not, it's because that, the personal thing is a condition that arises and ceases. And it's pure because it isn't, it isn't a conditioned state. But it doesn't seem like anything to your emotions. It doesn't seem like you know, if you, when you talk to worldly people who are very much committed to the ideas of the world themselves as personalities, it sounds crazy, really. Sounds like you're talking to, you know, one of those kind of nutty New Age people that that uh, lives in a world of delusion. That the real world is out there in London, being stressed out having a nervous breakdown. That's the real world. <laughs> or, sitting here, paying attention, looking, instead of trying to find reality as some, something out there, here, at first you're saying, looking inward or introspecting, looking, beginning to just look at what you're feeling, because that's one of the most the great challenges I've ever had is to really know what I'm feeling in the present. Because that, that, the, the mind is, is conditioned to always move out. To think is a kind of outward movement. To, to criticize, make judgments, to, to worry about the future, to, to feel anxious, or to dwell on what's wrong, to to dwell on what's wrong with me or you or Amravati or Buddhism or England or this is it seems so you know it's so in, we give it so much importance so so that the uh, this. You know, to, to begin to awaken to that, the way we, we can create uh, uh, these habits. And they, as you get older, you really see how, uh, like, just worry, for example, is, it becomes just a, you know, an obsession of the mind, a habit of the mind. Even when there's nothing to worry about, you, you worry. Because it's uh, it's the easiest thing to do. Because you're so used to worrying, it's such a strong habit that that you don't know what to do if there's nothing to worry about. When you think you're you're, you're nobody unless you're worrying, or you don't really care about things unless you worry about them, there's that kind of delusion. And then, uh, unless I'm really worried, I'm really nobody. Because the future is is uh, the unknown, so it's you can worry about the future. Do you worry about the present? 
I'm worried about right now. <laughs> Doesn't work, does it? You can't worry about the present. But you can be aware of worrying in the present. So which one do you want to follow? Do you want to be the, the personality that worries about the future or the awakened one in the present that, that observes the nature of worry? Because when you really look at worry, observe it, what, what is it? It's, it's nothing really. It's a habit. We can call it a habit. It's a kind of tendency we've developed to, uh, about uh, all the possibilities of misery in the future, everything going wrong, old age, getting cancer, losing our loved ones, the, the depression, the end of the millennium, the Y2K bug, the Armageddon, Death. What happens when you die? And so, this, this worry, anxiety, fear, you know, just about the, the unknown and the potential that, that we, uh, you know, about the future possibilities of, of humiliation, misery, pain, loss. So we can spend, you know, our life worrying about the future and never, and then what, we get depressed. Depressed and, and, uh, just full of fear and anxiety and, and become neurotic through all that. So the awakened state of the mind, the Buddha emphasizes, this is the way to, to get to not suffer from the way it is. So, so a simple act of attentive awareness in the present. So simple. But it's not easy for us at first because the, the, the momentum of habit and this is the emotion, emotionally can we're conditioned to, to always create issues and problems about everything. About oneself, about who's disrobing, about why they disrobe, about what am I going to do with my life, about uh, do I really want to be a monk or not? Do I, uh, am I really a Buddhist or not? Am I, uh, should I be in England or in Thailand or what should I do? That kind of thing is, is uh, we're used to that, you know, making problems around uh, all the you know options, alternatives, choices, other opportunities. Uh, we can be easily intimidated by the by other people who who have all kinds of views about us. But what can you really trust in any moment is the uh, is your ability to awaken and pay attention and to just know what you're feeling. We're there, 
but it's not a critical function. You're not criticizing, even if you're feeling rotten, you're not criticizing feeling rotten, you're noticing feeling rotten's like this. So feeling rotten is, is not a permanent state, it's a Asape Sankarani Cha. So that everything then, the good, the evil, the right, the wrong, success and failure, is, is observed in terms of the way it is. When you see the truth of the way it is, you're, 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 the Buddha knows the Dhamma. One of the problems of community life, really, is that uh, is that we, when you live with each other, you're affecting each other. So somebody starts, you know, you start uh, saying, uh, "Well, I think there's something wrong here," and then you start noticing this and that, and start, then you can blame it maybe on some particular person and and uh, then and then everybody, and if you keep then that can can trigger off that doubt in yourself. Because the, the feeling that there's something wrong is very much a, a, a feeling that we all tend to believe in. There is, what, there's something wrong. The Y2K bug, the, the end of the century, the end of the millennium, there's something going to go wrong. What's going to happen in the NATO blasting Kosovo? And uh, there's something wrong in Europe, or something wrong with the Americans, or something wrong in the is a feeling of dread, isn't it? There's something wrong. So that if somebody says there's something wrong here, then then it, then we start then it, because we're very much experiencing physically and consciously this place. So that that can easily, you know, seep through the consciousness of a community, and then we can say there's nothing wrong here. It's all right, you just, then they say, you're in a state of denial, Arjun Sumato. You won't admit that there's something basically wrong with Amravati. And, uh, because of your attachments to it, and, and so you're in denial. But then, then, uh, and so then that, that, I'll say, me in a state of denial? Never. They say, see, approved it. You just denied it. <laughs> now that's just around with thought, isn't it? Just thinking and just justifying, rationalizing. But then, then the intuitive moment is transcending that, not denying 
but it's aware of any denial or feeling. That feeling that there's something wrong is a feeling. I mean, not to say, we're not trying to say there isn't anything wrong, but we're pointing to that feeling that there's something wrong as a condition. Maybe look at that. And so then you're, so then it's a very direct way of using the flow of life rather than, than trying to just, you know, find a place where, where there's nothing wrong because you'll never find any place where there, there isn't anything wrong with it. Uh, because the nature of the world, there's always something wrong with it. It's changing. You can't, life, there's no society, no religion, no, uh, place, person or thing, that is going to be perfect, in a kind of con- eternally perfect state. That there's always something wrong with it, even when it's right. So right and wrong, say in the intuitive moment, the mind isn't p- choosing between right and wrong, but noticing these two feelings. The wanting to feel right, to feel that everything's right. Or the feeling that I'm right and you're wrong. Righteousness is a very, one of the problems with the religious life. Holier than thou and, and I'm right and you're wrong. And so, so this sense of being right is when you examine it. Now, I have a lot of experience with righteousness. Uh, that's been a great teacher. I'm right. And I remember I had an insight into this when I, years ago when I was in Thailand before coming to England. I was, I was contemplating it. I was in Bangkok, of all places, walking on a is a walking somewhere in Bangkok, and uh, and I'd, I'd been brought up as a Christian, so so, and and I'd had a quite a good Christian background, you know. I didn't I didn't have an unpleasant type of Christian background, so I I couldn't, you know, it wasn't like. That I, I, I tended, to, I rejected Christianity when I was a teenager, and because I, it just didn't make sense the way it was being presented to me. Uh, after I kind of grew up, they, I, my parents had a particularly kind of child's view, and I just couldn't believe in it after I started thinking about things more. So because of that, then I kind of felt Christianity was wrong because it didn't make sense to me anymore. So I, rather than, before I'd considered it right, and then, then I went to the opposite one, considering it wrong. And of course, if it's wrong, I'm rejecting it. Uh, and, and then in, in this insight, in these insight moments, you can remember almost you know, where you were. I remember it being in Bangkok and, and uh, walking and, 
And so suddenly I, I had this insight that if somebody asked me, you know, like being idealistic, I also have a kind of a nature that doesn't want to be divisive. So I have a tendency to want to think all religions are right. As an ideal, you know, my idealistic mind is such that I'm not, I'm not mean-hearted on the ideal level. I like I don't have a gr- kind of grand view of all religions are right. I wanted all religions to be right. And so when you go to interfaith meetings, you can say all religions are right because that that's inspiring and it's politically kind of appropriate. And you're not being you're not going around saying well ours is more right than yours or getting into a kind of uh, struggles with uh, proving that our way is somehow better than than your way. And then started contemplating this. And then, well, how, what do you really feel then? Do you feel that that Christianity and Buddhism are both equally right, or? Do you really feel like that, or is that just an idea you have in your mind? And then I, and then I felt, how I felt was Buddhism was more right. That was a feeling. <clears throat> so, just noticing the difference that, that uh, on the ideal level, which isn't feeling, is it? You don't feel ideas. Uh, ideas are are kind of pure forms. Uh, they're grand. They can you can make them kind of supreme and perfect. So all religions are equally right. Is an ideal. How do I feel? Emotionally, I feel Buddhism is more right, but that's a feeling. So, and the feeling is uh, a condition of the mind also. The, the, the insight into, because of the confusion around the intellect and the feeling, suddenly I saw clearly what I was doing, you know, that, that confusion between the ideal and, and what I actually might feel about something. So then, because of that, then I could see that that I that I can feel I'm right, and I can even be right. But that is also a condition that arises and ceases. So the 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 refuge isn't in being right, but in being aware. You see, so this is this awareness includes right and wrong. To feel wrong is a very uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? To, to feel right makes you feel good. So this is from my own experience. Uh, to be right, is, and everybody's saying, you're right, Arjun Sameto, you're absolutely right, we agree with you. That, make, that makes me feel good. I like that. But 
to be told I'm wrong, to feel or to feel that I'm wrong. That's not very nice. It's not. It doesn't feel good, does it? Somebody says you're wrong, Sumato. You're wrong, Ajahn Sumato. You've got it all wrong. So I'm just noticing the feeling of right and wrong, and that, that awareness uh, is really can see that that the right and uh, right and wrong are. You know, we choose to identify with with righteousness. We become very opinionated and stubborn and principled and full of our own views, and and we tend to look down on others who we feel are wrong because you're you're attaching to. Uh, but ultimately, if you're attached to being right, you're most afraid of being wrong. Because you, there's that doubt too. If you're attached to rightness, you could be wrong. In fact, you might be wrong, but that is such an uncomfortable feeling to have—a dread, isn't it, of being wrong, getting it all wrong, or success and failure, isn't it? Like you think, success. Look at all you've done, Ajahn Sumato. Uh, you know, you uh, the monasteries, and how many people have you ordained? People ask me that. You know. How many? How many? Uh, you know, I say, I'd like to say, you know, lots of people. And you know, since I've been in the UK, and, you know, uh, it's very nice to think of oneself as a successful monk. <clears throat> it's really been a, you know doing all the right things and being a great success is it makes you feel good but then failure that's a hard one to feel like you've failed that's a really unpleasant feeling for me does anyone like to feel that they're a failure and they're wrong so, uh, uh, there's no like when somebody disrobes. I can feel like a failure. I think if I'd, if I'd only paid more attention to them or loved them more or if, you know, if I had, you know, because I have made mistakes and haven't been all that, you know, I haven't done things that haven't been very good and and maybe they've lost faith or you know maybe it's my fault I've been done wrong things and 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 that they're disillusioned and that I'm a and that so I feel like a failure <clears throat> contemplating failure and success is a a lot of people think I'm a great success. And others think I'm a failure. So in listening to this, you know, just observing this in, internally, what this is in your guts, the gut level of reality. You know, the awareness, and I can be aware of the feeling of success, 
of uh, and of failure. One is happiness, one is misery. So these are these are, are reflections on the way it is, and both are they I don't feel successful as a permanent state. I can't sustain the feeling of being successful as a permanent reality. Impossible. Nor the feeling of being a failure, because of these are this, uh, this is personality view, sakya ditti, you know, so you're, you're contemplating the, this changingness of these feelings, success and failure, right and wrong. So what is the constant factor is the awareness, the pure state of attention. Because you, when you're awake and aware, then you're aware of success is like this, feeling successful, feeling of failure is like this, the way it is. Feeling of being a success, can't sustain, it's impermanent. Feeling of being a failure, unsustainable, impermanent. And when you let these go, when you let them go, let them be what they are, in other words, and they cease in the mind. You, you realize a cessation of conditions. And that realization, then, is, is still mindful. The mindfulness is aware of the absence of success, absence of failure. And that's bliss. Or peace, peacefulness. So in terms of, of what happens here, at, you know, the, the comings and goings and the, and the ups and downs, the successes and failures, the rights and wrongs, you know, there's something to, you know, not, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't worry about it. Determine not to worry, but to, Observe worry. Use worry. If you're a worrier, then that's something to really pay attention to, to observe it in terms of Dhamma. Worry is a, you know, you don't worry all the time. It's a condition that comes and goes. So you can use worry, not trying to get rid of wor a worrying habit, because then you're back in the personality again. I'm a worrier and I've got to get rid of it because it makes me suffer. Then you're bound to it again. Someone's always trying to resist it. So then you worry about worrying. Or you hate yourself for worrying. You think, oh, here I go again, worrying. And uh, Ajahn Samedo just said not to worry, and here I am worrying. And you go around with that. But if you, if you observe this, just a gentle attention to the experience of worry is like this. The truth of the way it is. What is the truth of the way it is? It's very simple and very direct. So then in terms of the monastic form, we can just, 
it's a it's a vehicle convention is there anything wrong I have a roof over my head for the night had my meal robes medicine for illness Dhammavinia what's wrong well, you know, I <laughs> What about the nun's order? What about the, all these nuns leaving? And what about the monks? And what about the grand opening? And, and what about the having monks and nuns living in the same monastery? And wouldn't it be better to have a nun's, mon- nun's monastery without monks or a monk's monastery without nuns or or, or so-and-so said this, and, and on and on we go into a realm of endless proliferation. So, so using the, like the four requisites uh, as a basis of what is, you know, the four requisites aren't based at, at the highest level, the high standard of living, are they? They're at the absolute lowest standard for requisites. I mean, we don't need a high standard of living. You have the best things, the best food, and the best shelters. So in this way, it's, it helps to reflect that the way we're conditioned to want to be discontented with what we have. Because we are culturally, that's that's our conditioning to, you know, capitalism and all that's very much priming us to never be content with anything. You know, always think that life could be better if we had this or didn't have that. So that's the, that's the cultural conditioning we have. So the four records help reflect, mirror that kind of habit that we, we all suffer from. Learning to, you know, contentment and gratitude and awakening to, to life, to the present and trusting in yourself to be able to do it. Well, that's an that's a, an irony that trusting in yourself and there's no self. <laughs> but what does that mean? Is being able to to take refuge, isn't it? To you know, if you're looking, if you're always looking outward for somebody, for some teacher or some place that you can take refuge in, you know, inevitably you'll find it. You know, you're not looking in the right place. It's in in your ability to awaken and to trust in that a very simple the simple the simplicity of that of the awakened moment is very simple. It's not a high state, you know, like a that depends on refined conditions on everything being right. It's not dependent on everything being right and good and refined. It's it's the natural state 
that's available, whatever, even if everything's wrong, one can still be mindful. A refuge is still there. So, uh, for this is a reflection for this evening. <laughs>